This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. When Jeff Collison left school in 1962, he was lucky enough to land a scholarship with the Daily Telegraph, starting off as a copy boy and later becoming the newspaper's greyhound writer. And so began a lifetime fascination with the sport and the characters who make it tick. In 1968, he was poached by the legendary journalist Pat Farrell to switch camps and join the Daily Mirror. In 1990, the Mirror was merged with its morning sister paper, the Daily Telegraph, and became known as the Daily Telegraph Mirror. In 1996, the old Mirror was phased out, and through all of those turbulent changes, Jeff Collison was writing about the dogs, constantly promoting the sport. He was always looking for a different angle, the human interest stories, which made him a household name in his chosen field. He retired from the telly in 2012, but under the auspices of the GRNSW, he still has a presence with the newspaper. Pigeon, what are you doing these days? Oh, the, the same old tappy, what I've always done. Uh, I, I don't miss a Wentworth Park meeting. I don't go to the country meetings these days, but never miss a Wentworth Park meeting. And um, I still love it. I still look for I'm, I, I reckon I'm nearly first there every week, mm. every meeting. I get there at about 4.30, 5 o'clock and, uh, and uh, you know, start to soak up the atmosphere and I'm counting down to the first race. You're one of the most amusing guests I ever had on the Sky Racing program, Inside Racing, and I'm hoping, of course, that you'll impart some of those wonderful stories again on this podcast. So let's begin with your well-known nickname. You've worn that soubriquet from a very early age. Where did it come yes, from? Actually, I wrote David McNichol, who was the editor-in-chief. He was Sir Frank Packer's right-hand man. He was the editor-in-chief of Consolidated Press and the Daily and the Daily Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph. He mm. gave me that name because I had racing pigeons mm. as a kid, and um, and I still had them when I uh, became a copy boy at the Telegraph. And actually, I I had the distinction, if you call it that. David McNichol asked me to write a feature story. Uh, for the Sunday telly when I was still a copy boy, Goodness which uh, I, I think was was pretty well unheard of. Uh, but he was quite fascinated because uh, I used to tell him about the, the pigeons. And uh, when I went out to the dogs, I had to take his uh, his money to, to bet with and uh, ring up and uh, between races and tell him uh, what I thought he should back and so on. So I, I, he got me to do a story on the pigeon racing, and it was a fantastic sport. It's it's uh, if the greyhounds are the poor man's racehorse, I guess pigeons are the poor man's greyhound. <laughs> you obviously had aspirations of becoming a sports writer very early in life because your dear old mum was inspired to go out and buy you a Hermes typewriter <laughs> w- worth yeah, about was... 35 quid in that era or $64. Yeah, it was a lot. I was eight years old uh, Christmas uh, 1953, it must have been I got it. Goodness uh, and, and it was £35, which is $70, but it was a fortune in those days. Yeah. Uh, and uh, mum couldn't afford to buy it. She put it on lay-by, and uh, I don't know <laughs> if they still have lay-bys. But she, I don't think she, so. 
<laughs> she paid it off at ten bob a week or whatever it was, or ten bob a month, and uh, and it was uh, still the best Christmas present I've ever got because uh, I used to sit down and type imaginary newspapers with mainly focus on the racing side of things. Yeah, and you would also use that Hermes typewriter to type up form guides for the pigeon races. To stimulate, That's right, exactly. Uh, well, what I uh, when I was at high school, mm. um, I and I had the uh, racing pigeons. We were living in Tempe at the time, yep. and uh, I used to take a basket of pigeons on the school bus to release from Enmore Boys High School, where I was going. <laughs> and it was only by as the crow flies or as the pigeon flies about couple of two miles mm. but uh i'd take a basket of pigeons well you know can you imagine that now a kid getting on a bus with a basket full of pigeons they'd arrest you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no one worried no one worried and uh i'd get to school with a basket of pigeons i'd have the form guide typed out with all the pigeons names and there was a friend of mine stan kemp uh, another school school lad who later became a bookie uh, <laughs> he was the bookmaker uh, and the and I I'd have a form guide and uh, with uh, all the pigeons' names and the and the first one in one. And uh, now they'd all get home together because it was such a short flight. But my poor old mum had to stand out and and watch for them to see who won. And she knew them all. knew <laughs> knew she knew which one was which. And yeah. uh, there was a pigeon called Zorro who was all a, a brilliant trapper. She was always, he was, she was always first in. Mm. Um, and so uh, after she won a couple of, uh, couple of races, um, Zorro was sort of uh, a twos on chance or a threes on chance and all the kids at school would back her. The teachers used to bet on them too as well, yeah. I might add. And um, there were no <laughs> mobile phones, of course, in those days. And at recess, uh, we'd go down to the uh, corner shop and I'd ring mum and say, who won? And invariably she'd say, oh, Zorro won again. And the kids would all be cheering and poor yeah. old Stan would have to pay out. And... and Sounds During, like uh, Stan wasn't doing too much like damage, mate, was he? He was putting them up, putting Zorro up at threes on. Oh, yeah, yeah, but the kids weren't frightened to lay the threes on. But then I got a stray <laughs> came in one day, yeah. uh, just arrived with my birds. Mm -hmm. And when I was flying them, uh, exercising them in the afternoons, she was coming, uh, a red bird, and I called it Rocket. It yeah. was beating Zorro every afternoon. Good heavens. Anyway, Stan said, oh, this is going to be a fill-up. Put rocket in, but make sure you bag it in the form guide. And I said, "Well, I can't do that. I can't do that to our schoolmates." So I, I said, "Trialing brilliantly, uh, f having first start, but trialing brilliantly." But uh, the kids didn't care. They stuck with Zorro, and I went down. We went down to the shop at the, at recess. Rang mum. And I said, who won, Mum? She said, Zorro, of course. I said, are you sure? She said, yeah, Zorro won. Rocket came second. <laughs> so you were sadly astray with that one. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, mm. Zorro, Zorro was uh, stepped up to the plate for all the kids that backed her. One more pigeon story. You yep. got your hands on a very good bird, which you named Time and Tide after a yes, brilliant yeah, galloper of the night. After the was Harry Plant train. Yeah, winner of a Doncaster and an Oakley Plate. What was so special about your Time and Tide? Well, he won a race from uh, Maroolan to Sydney, which is a, a sprint, 86 miles, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, beat a furl of 600. The following year, uh, 
he won the same race again. There was a field of 700, and he won easily. And Mel Mercer, who was the uh, Cooks River Pigeon Club, he was the best flyer. He was the dean of pigeon racing in, in our area. Mm-hmm. And he said, now, you want to put this bird away, his metabolism, he comes right at this time of year, obviously, and this is his pet distance. Put him away, wait for next year, he'll win it again for you next year. And I said, well, after Maroolan, he wouldn't have blown out a candle. He wasn't even puffing, didn't ever want to drink a water. So the next big race was the Cootamundra Combine, which was worth quite a bit of money because there were other clubs involved. Mm. And that was an extra 100 miles. So I confidently sent time and tide away to the Cootamundra Combine. But obviously, he found the 100 miles extra too much because I've never seen him since. And I always say to people, that's the hardest sport to train pigeons because if you've got a, a pacer or a thoroughbred or a greyhound and you test test the horse or dog over a longer distance and they can't run it, can't mm. see it out, well, you can switch them back to in distance. But with pigeons, you can't. If they mm. can't stay, bad luck. You've mm. made a blue and they're gone. So what is your theory? Was he... Taken by a hawk, or did he well, just drop he, he out of the sky? Been, but I'm more inclined to think he probably just uh, maybe after about 86 miles, he landed in a park somewhere, or joined another uh, uh, crowd of pigeons that uh, people were exercising. But uh, he would have had. He, if he, I think if he'd gone into another loft, uh, they'd have contacted me because all the pigeons had numbers on their legs. But mm. he could well have been taken by a hawk or just finished up spending the rest of his life uh, scrounging around a park somewhere. <laughs> you know, Jeff, you could easily have gone to the horses in your teen years because you yeah. always liked the gallops and you liked the trots. Your only brother, Barry, in fact, had been an apprentice jockey at the old Moorfield track. Yes, he was apprenticed to Sid O'Rourke at Moorfield. He was a very good show rider, my brother, and Mm -hmm. he was apprenticed to Sid O'Rourke at Moorfield. And then, uh, but he did, he, he, wasn't happy after a while. He um, he used to ride track work for a lot of the uh, Moorfield um, trainers, uh, Jimmy McCurley and uh, Billy Childs and Arthur Kroll. Mm. But, uh, and when he got his ticket to ride, uh, which incidentally Jack Thompson, the late Jack Thompson, helped him get, uh, he was riding in a barrier trial for his ticket. And uh, Jack Thompson said, uh, are you riding for your ticket, son? And my brother said, yes, Mr. Thompson. And Tom I said, well... Uh, just sit behind me. My horse has got a bit of pace. You're drawn next to me. Sit straight behind me. When we get to the home turn, I'll pull, ease mine off the track and you can still zip along the fence and the stewards will be impressed. They'll say, this kid's stealing the rails, stolen the rails, run off Jack Thompson. And uh, he did just that. As they got to the home turn, Tommy eased off the fence, said, three you go, son. And uh, my brother won the barrier trial and immediately got his ticket. But uh, he was... Uh, disappointed when he was offered the ride on a horse called Cooper, you know, uh, who he used to ride track work. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, Sid O'Rourke wouldn't let him take the ride because he wanted Barry at the stables. Uh, uh, as a, He was a, an apprentice jockey, but he was also a strapper, virtually. And uh, they gave the ride to another kid, and um, it, uh, the horse won, and Barry gave it away after that and took up uh, motor racing. He became disillusioned. He became uh, very disillusioned, yeah, very disappointed. What were your feelings when you were first asked to leave the telly and go to the Daily Mirror? Did you seek advice? Yes. Well, my father was uh, uh, the old school 
John, you know, he said, look, they've been good to you at the telly. You've got to be loyal. You stay there. Don't you leave. But Bert Lilly, the late Bert Lilly, who was a great racing rider, uh, said to me, listen, uh, the newspaper game's not like a lot of other games. If you stay at the Telegraph let, and you don't get an offer to go elsewhere, they'll let you stay there till you die on the same wage you're on now. The only way to uh, get ahead is to, to move around. So I took the job at the Daily Mirror and, of course, ironically, uh, a few years later, um, Rupert Murdoch bought the Telegraph, so a lot of my old mates from the telly joined me up at mm. uh, Holt Street and Surrey Hills at the uh, Daily Mirror. Your expertise as a dog tipster was sought by such luminaries as Kerry Packer. Now, you tipped That's... him a few winners, but you tell me the sling was a bit light. <laughs> well, <coughs> well, there was no sling, but... Uh, Kerry, Kerry did have a quirky sense of humour. I tell you, I had to be in the. I used to go cover the horses as well, of course. Doing, I was the details man of the, uh, of the horses. But I had to be in the office between six and six thirty every Saturday night, and Kerry would ring me for the dog tips, <laughs> and uh, and I, I tipped him. I had a real good run. I tipped him a lot of winners, and then I tipped him a dog one night called the Shoe, which. Uh, at Harold Park, who was a Harold Park specialist. He had box eight, desperate for box eight, wide run. I looked at Moral. Anyway, uh, as you know, they're only animals. He missed the start this night and, and didn't get sighted. Well, Kerry poked his head in the office door on the Monday, and in hindsight, I think it was Kerry's quirky sense of humour. He said, uh, Pigeon, I don't know how you hold a job in this place. I put all my money on the shoe, and they're still looking for him. I don't know how you hang on to this job. Anyway, I uh, did my lolly a bit and said, uh, well, listen, Kerry, I didn't really like the shoe all that much, but I said, I've been I've tipped you a lot of winners. Not only have I never had even a thank you, I haven't had a sling of any type. And, he, and Kerry said, well, uh, the fact that my father is the managing director of this company, I thought would have carried a bit of weight and would have meant I didn't need to sling. And Keith Robbins was, uh, the late Keith Robbins was my boss. He was the turf editor. And uh, to his credit, Keith went to bat for me and piped up and said, Kerry, that cuts no ice here. Uh, you've got a sling. If you're not slinging, you're not getting the first set of tips. And Kerry said, well, I'll remember that. Turned on his heel and went and uh, never rung me again. Never, never rang me for a tip again. But I, yeah. I kept the job. In 1972, you had a golden run on the punt and you suddenly found yourself with an embarrassment of riches. Now, your great mate, the late Bill Morty, better known as Break Even Bill, recommended a method by which you could get rid of a bit. Well, that's right. Well, the World Cup Rugby League was on in France and uh, Bill said, listen, I'd never been out of Australia and uh, not like nowadays, Tappy, where, you know, kids... Kids go to Hawaii for the for the, the weekend almost. Mm. Uh, I'd never been out of Australia, and uh, Blue Gum or Break Even Bill, as he later became known, said, uh, "You might as well come and watch the World Cup Rugby League." He said, "I'll book you into all the hotels the teams at, and you'll have a terrific time." So uh, I decided to take the plunge and do it. And uh, the night before I left, uh, Buck Buchanan, who's a it was a famous greyhound and thoroughbred man. He owned the great mare, Lady Sybil. Mm. Uh, he owned Scenic Star, who won a Goodwood Handicap. And he owned uh, Amerigo Lady, who uh, had won the first national distance championship at the greyhounds. 
he gave me some uh, Irish Greyhound papers to read on the plane because I was going to Ireland first. Mm-hmm. There was a number written on one of them, CAR3256. I've never forgotten it. And uh, I ran after him and said, oh, do you need this number? He said, oh, gee, I nearly forgot. That's the phone number of a girl in Paris. Give her a ring when you get there. It's a terrible place if you don't know anyone. That was Buck's opinion anyway. And uh, she'll look after you. Her name's Catherine. Mm. So uh, I rang Catherine uh, when I got to Paris. And uh, she showed me uh, some of the sights of Paris. I took her. I was cashed up. Took her to some nice uh, clubs and restaurants. And uh, here we are still, uh, she came out to Australia uh, uh, the following year. We got married in January 74 and uh, best winner I've ever backed. Four kids and 45 years later. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and the fate's a funny thing, isn't it? If I hadn't noticed that uh, scrawled telephone number on the paper, I would never have met her, I guess. It turns out uh, Buck Buchanan's daughter was married to uh, Catherine's brother and they lived in Melbourne. Yeah. Now, Jeff, in Paris, you took her to places like the Lido and the Crazy Horse. She's lucky to get the Maccas nowadays, isn't she? <laughs> well, the first night the Lido was uh, uh, Neville Mogler, who was a famous uh, dog bookie, had uh, told me it was the best uh, nightclub he'd ever been to. So I took her to the Lido for our first date. And uh, I said, wow, how often do you come here? She said, I've never been here. I said, what? How can you have never been here? This is the best place I've ever been to. And uh, she said, I'm a, I'm a university student. I can't afford to come to places like this. This is for rich tourists. So uh, anyway, the next morning at breakfast, Bill Morty said, how did you go with the French trailer? I said, oh, terrific. I'm pretty sweet, I think. And she's a great girl. And I've got to find somewhere nice to take her tonight. He said, oh, I'll take, uh, take her to the crazy horse. It's better than the Lido. I said, oh, it couldn't be. He said, I said, well, I'll book the tickets. He said, no, no, I'll leave it to me. I've got to, you've got to get certain seats at the crazy horse. So he booked the tickets through the concierge at the hotel uh, and they, they were pretty exy, and we walked down, and they showed us a, a table at the front. Well, it wasn't a table. It was just a bench below the stage, and you were looking up in the air, uh, not getting a, a quicking your neck looking up at the stage, and I thought, these are terrible seats. And Catherine checked in French with the, the uh, guy who showed us to the, our seats, and he said, no, no, they're your seats, they're the right numbers and everything. And anyway, uh, of course, uh, out comes the uh, the can-can girls, about 20 uh, magnificent-looking young ladies, uh, all topless, of course, and they start doing the French can-can, and uh, none of them had any panties on. <laughs> Uh, and, of co- and then I noticed only Catherine was the only female in this row. <laughs> so, and of course, this was Bill Moore, typical Australian lyric, and this was his idea of a, of, of uh, playing a great joke on me. And uh, I was so embarrassed. And she said, oh, don't worry, I'm broad-minded, I'm broad-minded. I said, well, it's my friend Morty has done this. And, of course, the next morning at breakfast, Morty said, how are those seats I got your mate? I said, oh, it's a wonder she still talks to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll get on to greyhound racing yes. now, Jeffrey. Greyhound lovers listening to the podcast will be busting to hear your reflections on the best dogs and the best races you've seen in 50 years of covering the sport. You have always plumped for Zoom Top number one. 
without without doubt, um, you know, I, I guess people can say, well, you're living in the past. She was racing in sort of six, around 1968, 69, but she was just so versatile. She would win uh, an 800 yards top grade race at Harold Park on Saturday night. Uh, that's 732 metres, and 48 hours later, she'd win the 580 metre, 580 yards, a 520 metre top grade race at Wentworth Park. That's like, uh, that's almost like winning a, a, a Caulfield Cup, and 48 hours uh, later, winning uh, up the up the straight six at Flemington. Like it was just incredible, and uh, I don't think we'll ever see the like of her because her trainer, the late Het Watt. Uh, set her an enormous task by racing her like that, but she thrived on it. But I don't think anyone would ever would ever set a greyhound a task like that again. Now, Zoom Top won 68 out of 136. She had a litter sister called Busy's Charm yes. who won 50 races. Yeah, Busy's Charm lived in Zoom Top's shadow all her life. And uh, mm. uh, if Zoom Top had never been born, well, Busy's Charm probably would have been venerated uh, almost as much because, but she wasn't quite as versatile as Zoom Top. Um, and Zoom Top got a name, a fellow called Pat Pirelli used to uh, mow the lawns at Heck Watt's place. Pat's a greyhound trainer these days. Mm. And he was, uh, Heck Watt said, I've got a real good bitch by Blacktop out of Busy Beaver. Pat, think of a name for her. And Pat was sitting on the mower and it had, a sticker for BP Zoom petrol on it, mm. and Pat, Pat <laughs> went inside and thought, I thought of a good name. She's by Black Top, and this BP Zoom, what about Zoom Top? And that's how she got the name. And how fitting and how attractive and how good sounding. It does, yes, yes. One of your early favourites way back was the great front runner Roman Earl. He didn't race a lot, Jeff. He only had 36 starts. He won 18 of them. Yeah, brilliant beginner. Uh, he was in that mould, uh, and the bookies always wanted to take him on because uh, he, he used to ping the lids. He didn't break a lot of track records, but he used to ping the lids, go straight to the front, a faultless beginner. And uh, there was nearly always someone that'd say, uh, another dog would get, uh, this was a noted strong finisher, was boxed to sit straight behind him and would run him down, but they very rarely ran him down. You could, but you could always get even money or 10 to 9 against about Roman Earl. Blacktop was a gift to his owner, Frank Holmes. He only raced 20 times. He won 17, but he had an astonishing stud career. His progeny won something like 10,000 races. Yeah, phenomenal dog. Frank was a butcher from uh, up around uh, Homersville, I think it was. Uh, he, he was a butcher up around, uh, up in the Hunter Valley anyway. Mm. And uh, he uh, he trained Blacktop throughout his career. And um, and then actually someone else had, um, uh, uh, yeah, someone else had bred him and Frank uh, got him as a gift and he trained Blacktop and uh, then stood him at stud. Uh, at Kellyville in uh, New Windsor. Mm. Brett Lee was the fastest of the modern era, earning $405,000. Uh, when it was time to retire Brett Lee, he suddenly found a new owner. That's right, Keith Padrano. Keith Padrano, uh, I think he uh, sold his house and mortgaged his house and sold his business to, to buy Brett Lee, a, a massive gamble to take uh, because 
but, but Keith was uh, so wrapped in the dog, and the dog uh, earned a fortune, more than repaid his, uh, his brave outlay. El Gazelle was another one, Jeff, a real specialist on the old Harold Park track. And like yes, Octagonal, and the racehorse, he never won by a fancy margin. Yeah, well, El Gazelle, uh, he, he'd get to the front, and he knew it was a race. And, and some dogs today uh, are like that. El Gazelle would get to the front, and once he was in front, he'd loaf a bit. But if another dog started to uh, gain on him again near the line, he'd sort of put the foot down uh, on the pedal again and he'd win by half a length or a length. He'd give his back as heart failure, but uh, he, he knew where the finish line was. And the great staying dogs. Travel Rev was one of your favourites, so was Miata. Yes, great, great greyhound Miata. Uh, well, and, of course, more recently, uh, uh, Tornado Tears. Uh, but uh, Travel Rev's my favourite, but he was purely a Harold Park uh, dog. Actually, Alfie Hayes who, from Malabar, who trained me, was at Wentworth Park last night. And um, Travel Rev was unbeatable virtually at Harold Park. In fact, uh, trainers used to send entries in and put on the scroll across the top of the entry form not to be drawn against Travel Rev. Mm. Uh, so they couldn't find, uh, they got to the stage where they couldn't find races for him. So they started to build a handicap box. So he was going to be handicapped Good. and have to start from over the 800 yards. He was going to have to run 8, 10 or 8, 20 yards. Uh, but then uh, he ret- was, uh, he, I think he got injured and he retired uh, before that uh, handicap box came into fruition. And, of course, more recently, uh, Fanta Bale, who's the biggest stakes winner uh, uh, Greyhound Racing in Australia has had, uh, she was a marvellous stayer. Well, mainly a stayer, but she won over 460 to 725 metres. She only retired just over a year ago with $1,365,175 prize money. And what a record, Tappy, 42 wins from 63 starts. Astonishing. Yeah, in recalling the great performances you've seen in greyhound racing, you've always had two at the top of your list. First one, Tent Hill Dolls win in the 1996 Golden Easter Egg at Wentworth Park. It was just an amazing performance. Amazing performance. She uh, she didn't run fast time. She ran 30, 30 and 51, but she found so much trouble that people had backed her, uh, had virtually given up hope that she was going to get the cash, and she just kept coming. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, she became uh, a greyhound of the year uh, in, uh, in 1995 and 96 as well. She won the award, the greyhound of the year award twice. Mm. The other one you talk about is Rapid Journeys win in the National Sprint Championship at Cannington in 1998. In 1998, yes. Yeah, yeah came, came from last. And uh, I remember Jane Carruthers, who, uh, who uh, uh, trained the dog, she, uh, she just thought it was just unbelievable. She said, uh, she said to me one day, I still to this day don't know how he was able to do that. He's just so intelligent and he had a tremendous will to win. The 2019 English Australian Easter Yearling Sale was the second best ever conducted. Well over $122 million was traded over two days with 19 lots realising a million or more. 75 lots sold for $500,000 or more, up from 72 last year. 
Seven Stallions recorded the highest ever individual sale price, including Schnitzel 2.8 million, Exceed and Excel 1.7 million, Lonro 1.4 million, Brazen Bow 1.1. The day one trade of almost 64 million was a Southern Hemisphere record for an individual day's yearling sale turnover. It was a huge two days at beautiful Riverside in front of an energetic buying bench from all corners of the globe. Greyhound racing has seen several big punters over the years, none more colourful than the mysterious woman known as the Bag Lady. That's right. burst onto the scene at Wentworth Park in 1989. She had a minder, she carried a lot of cash in her handbag, she punted only on favourites, and she yes. had a fixed profit margin in mind. Yes, well, she apparently she'd studied uh, all, all three codes uh, over a period of time and found that there hadn't been a night at Wentworth Park where every favourite was beaten, and she was cashed up. So she decided, for some reason, she'd go to Wentworth Park, back the first favourite to win 14000 and if it won, she'd go home. Now, the problem was going to be a getting set because she she didn't want to be putting gribs and drabs on all around the ring. But John Story, the late John Story, who was the most fearless bookie I've ever known, mm. uh, he said he agreed to better. And uh, anyway, she won. And he said to me, uh, I said, gee, you're pretty brave. She seems to have limitless. And he said, well, I haven't got limitless, but so one of us will go broke, either her or me. Uh, so uh, uh, John Story decided he'd better and one night she was uh, having a bad run she'd lost 87,000 favourites in the first three races uh, got beaten she was doing 87,000 and there uh, in the fourth race there was an an average dog called True Blue Tar but he was an even money favourite and she Put two hundred. Asked John Story for two hundred and two thousand to one hundred and one thousand on, so she recuperate eighty seven and also get a nice profit on the night. And uh, John Story, JS as they used to call him, led her on, and True Blue Tar went straight to the lead and won by seven lengths. But um, he outlasted the bag lady. She went broke soon after. Did you get to meet her at all? Well, you couldn't get near her. Uh, I knew her by sight, but never actually spoke to her. Her minders uh, wouldn't wouldn't let anyone near her. Uh, I think it would be very different now. If I was working for a newspaper now, I think the editor would insist that, uh, that you, you found out who she was, and I guess with social media and so on now, too, uh, it would be very hard for the to remain as uh, as secretive as she was in those days. And what age was the bag lady in that era? I suppose she'd have been a lady in her in her fifties, I'd say. With with a mind for mathematics, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah, 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 yes. Jeff, you've written a, you've written a when million. When she came to start coming to the dogs, no one had ever seen her, so she wasn't a, a regular punter. No, and disappeared as quickly as she arrived. Yes, yes. You've written a million dog stories, but your all-time favourite was the one about Digger Green and Tambus Choice. Oh, that's right, yes. Yes, uh, Digger's, uh, I think his son Robert worked at the uh, dog's home and and uh, this uh, greyhound had been uh, 
uh, sent there to uh, he was uh, no good and I think he was broken down and he was going to be euthanized and uh, of course they can't not, not permitted to do that now greyhounds must go when they're retired the owners have to find a home for them you can't put a greyhound down these days unlike other dogs but in those days you could uh, but Dicker's son uh, rang his uh, dad and uh, said, there's a greyhound here, would you like him? And uh, so Digger took Tamba's choice and he became a winner mm. for Digger. Your versatility knew no bounds. You also made your mark in the Daily Mirror and the Telegraph as a restaurant and wine reviewer and yes, a very good one. Right, yes. yes, I had a, uh, I got a good trifecta there, punting, drinking and uh, and uh, eating, three of my favourite habits. I used to read your wine reviews and they were written with great passion. How long did that phase of your career last? Oh, several years. Well, uh, virtually almost until I retired in 2012. Um, Of course, uh, things took a different turn. Things changed. Uh, I think the restaurant reviewing... uh, started soon after I began the wine reviewing uh, and um, I think uh, Sue Bennett who was the features editor was uh, in a conference meeting one day and the editor said what are we doing that uh, that we sh- what aren't we doing that we should be doing and she said well we should have a restaurant review mm-hmm. uh, in the Daily Mirror and uh, and then in the telly and uh, the editor said oh well uh, can you do that she said oh I haven't got time to do it okay, well get Jeff Collison to do it he eats at restaurants all the time anyway so, <laughs> so t- I, that's how I, that's how the greyhound rider landed the job of the as being the restaurant reviewer. In 2005, the ABC published your memoirs, and the name says it all, Geoffrey. Getting yeah, paid get, to getting drink paid and to gamble. Drink and gamble. <laughs> How appropriate. Yes, it was, was appropriate, and it was thanks to uh, uh, the late Peter Lehman, the famous winemaker from the Barossa Valley, his wife, uh, Margaret. Uh, I stayed at their place uh, for a few nights. And we used to sit and talk after uh, uh, after dinner with a, a glass of red in our hand, and I'd rattle off stories about the dogs. And Margaret said, "Oh, you." She was she was always a bit of an Australian folk uh, folklore historian. Mm. She said, "You've got to write a book about all this uh, because when you die, these stories will all be lost." Mm. But uh, I said, "Oh, I don't know if I want to write a book." But she, when I got home, I she pestered me and pe- she wore me down, and I wrote the book. Perhaps the greatest accolade bestowed upon you by the greyhound industry occurred in two thousand and six. The committee of the NCA decided to call a race the Collison. What an honour. Right. It came yes. from nowhere. Yes, it was a, a, it was a heck of a shock. And, uh, of course, usually those honours only come after, after you've passed away, it seems. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, very, very proud of that. It's the, And the race is still going. It's the consolation race, if you like, for the... Uh, the Paws of Thunder, a Group 1 race, and the dogs that don't make the final, the eight finalists, the next eight fastest qualifiers uh, contest the Collison on Paws of Thunder night. You hosted a very popular program called Going Greyhounds on Sky Racing Radio. It seemed to go forever. Yes, it went for went for a long while, and we'd, uh, uh, we used to interview trainers and uh, 
And and uh, the trainers were terrific uh, because sometimes in those days, uh, you know, pe- people would trial a dog, and there was a lot of punting, and they trial a dog and uh, in private virtually. And and I used to uh, say before I started the tape, look, you don't have to say anything you don't want to say. But I didn't want anyone to tell fibs. And uh, I'd say, can I ask you if you've trialed the dog around the track? And Without exception, they were wonderful. They all said, "Yeah, you can ask me, and I'll tell you the truth." And mm-hmm. and they did. And um, and and it's amazing because one uh, trainer who had a bit of a reputation as a scallywag uh, had two <laughs> runners one night, and and one of them he uh, put a huge rap on. He said, "Troll the place down," and the other one he said he didn't troll that good. And uh, Gary Manning, a great mate of mine, who was probably the biggest punter on the track at the time, mm-hmm. uh, said, "Was he telling the truth?" And I said, well, I don't know. I didn't have a lie detector on him. And uh, Gary said, oh, I reckon he'd be trying out a bit of burly there. And sure enough, people are cynical because the dog he wrapped blew out the gate and (laughs) bolted in, and the one he put no wrap on was heavily backed and got beaten. (laughs) We've all heard the expression cunning kick or secret whippy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the late Bill Whittaker, eminent racing writer, used to hide his winnings way back early in his life in the back of an old radio cabinet. <laughs> and he was horrified one day when he discovered that his hard earned had been chewed to confetti by mice. <laughs> wow. You had a mate called Tony Zuccarini. Uh, he, right. he had a nightmare experience with his cunning kick. He sure kick. did, yes. Yeah, Zookie, God love him. He uh, he had his cunning kick. I think he had about 3,000 uh, or something uh, in an old check shirt that he hung up in his wardrobe with a safety pin across the, the top of it uh, where the money was. And uh, one night he came home from uh, probably from the dogs or from work. He was working at the uh, at the Herald. And he was horrified to find that his check shirt was gone. Anyway, he said to his mum, where's my shirt? She said, oh, that old thing. I put it in the uh, St. Vincent de Paul skip bin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Zuki uh, was a pretty big guy. And uh, he said, where, which bin? And she said, oh, the one up near the station, near the railway station. Uh, so Zuki uh, got his, uh, uh, I think he was a, uh, about a six or seven-year-old nephew, uh, got him out of bed and took him to the skip bin and lowered him into it with a torch. <laughs> uh, and the poor kid was terrified. And uh, he, the next minute he said, there's a check shirt here. They feel the, there's a bit of a bulge in the pocket, Uncle Tony. So uh, Zuki got him out and uh, I said, how much did you give uh, your nephew? He said, $20. I said, that's a light sling, Zook, light sling. (laughs) To use the name of a very famous greyhound, it's been a rapid journey, but a wonderful journey and I suspect you wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't change a thing, Johnny. No, it's fantastic and uh, the sports, you know, we've got four dogs of won over a million dollars prize money. The best sprinter I've seen recently, Fernando Bale, uh, who had an uncanny knack of anticipating the start. Um, he, he, the hair, had st- he'd be, he, they'd put him in the boxes and he'd stand up straight like the last of the straight backs. And as soon as the hair started, he'd do a little shuffle and then crouch down ready to ping the leads and invariably come out first. Unbelievable. You swear he had uh, had a champion jockey on his back. 
How many greyhounds are there currently on the list of $1 million earners? It's growing, uh, isn't it? There's, there's four. Fanta Bale, who I mentioned earlier, Fernando Bale, who won uh, just on $1,300,000. Uh, Dinah Double One, who won... Uh, who was retired in 2016? He won 1,160,000 odd thousand, and those uh, those three were all from the Wheeler Kennels. They did most of their racing in Victoria, but the Wheeler uh, breeding farm is uh, down near Young, and uh, the other one has uh, joined the million dollar bracket is Mystic Riot, who won the million dollar chase uh, at Wentworth Park in October for uh, Peter and Jody. Like Ogiani, and he is Mystic Ride. She's owned by a Sydney plumber named Colin Camden, Birmingham. One final question. Whatever became of the Hermes typewriter, your uh, mother lay by to start I you know, off as a sports to writer? To my regret, I, I think I probably traded it in on a, on a, on a new Remington or, or Royal or something uh, years later because I I don't I can't remember what became of it but I certainly haven't got it but it's my great regret that I don't didn't uh, didn't hang on to it for uh, uh, sentimental reasons. Jeff Collison, you are the Damon Runyon of Greyhound journalists. Always great to talk. Long time since we've recorded an interview of this nature. And it's a great privilege to have you on the podcast. It's been my pleasure, Tappy. Thank you so much for inviting me on the program. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The focus of thoroughbred breeders will now centre on the English Chairman's Sale and the Australian Broodmare and Weanling Sale to be held at Riverside from May the 2nd. A magnificent collection of top-class mares will be offered. Group 1 winner Aloysia, dual Group 1 winners for Candy in full to American Pharaoh, Santa Ana Lane's Dam, Fast Fleet in full to Zoo Star, Inca Lagoon, Dam of Hong Kong champion I Victory in full to Sebring, Group 2 winning mare Snitty Kitty, Norzita, champion three-year-old filly of her generation in full to Schnitzel, Pasadena Girl, Savabeel's only Group 1 winning two-year-old filly in full to Sebring, Fiesta's Dam, now now, in Falder Piero. Noondi, the Dam of Booker, in Falder Ridden Tycoon. Dash Off, the Dam of Sprite, in Falder I Am Invincible. Apology not accepted, the only mare in Falder Medagliadoro to be offered this year. So Serene, a winning Exceed and Excel mare, in Falder Sebring. Netoya, a daughter of Sebring, being offered as a racing and breeding prospect. 53 lots and a few wild cards will be offered at the boutique sale commencing at 6.30 Friday, May 3rd at Riverside Stables.